for the death of because every piece of plastic that we produce is ultimately a piece of plastic waste that has to be dealt with. For this episode, we wanted to take a little bit of a segue by focusing on some core elements of environmental justice, like what it is and why it matters, and have this dialogue shaped by people that have been working on this issue for a really long time. The title for this episode is, If You Aren't At The Table, You're On The Menu. We need to change the way important decisions are made about people who are most impacted by it. I'm your host, Shilpi Chotre, and this is People Over Plastic. My first guest is Patrice Sims, who has a lot of experience with this analogy in his 23-year career as an accomplished environmental attorney and thought leader. From working under the Obama administration to on-the-ground relief efforts during Hurricane Katrina, and even teaching law at the prestigious, historically black Howard University. He is currently the Vice President of Litigation at Earth Justice. Patrice, what does it mean to be at the table? Being at the table means having people whose experience is directly connected to the communities for whom the decisions will matter most, having those people at the table, helping to craft not only the solutions, but helping to craft the questions that lead to the problem identification that ultimately lead to solutions. Um, And of course, what it means when we say, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu, is it means if you're not there doing it, if you're not there coming up with the questions, uh, identifying the problems and crafting the solutions, then your problems and your solutions are not going to be a part of what's happening and your community will continue to be devoured. We see this playing out now, especially in the wake of the the last couple of years and um, the incredible transformation that's happened as a product of the work of uh, organizations like uh, Movement for Black Lives and Black Lives Matter, that the, the understanding and the willingness and the openness to transforming some of these places where decisions are happening is uh, is really starting to take root in a way that it you know that is long long overdue. That's such a powerful way to explain this metaphor, Patrice. And I'd love to know what was your invitation to the table. First of all, I feel incredibly fortunate to be where I am. Earth Justice is a fantastic organization and one that's leading the way in many respects. It has been a really long path for me, and I feel really fortunate to have had all of the experiences I have. I spent some time in another large environmental uh, nonprofit organization, um, and that's where I got my first exposure, really on-the-ground exposure to environmental justice issues. I took that job in the immediate wake of Hurricanes Katrina and Rita. You know, I showed up at that job about two weeks after Hurricane Katrina hit hit the uh, New Orleans. That was a tremendous learning experience for me, both in terms of um, having the opportunity to be uh, right on the front lines of 
an environmental justice catastrophe. The impact on the predominantly black community in the Lower Ninth Ward and other places in the Gulf was a product of um, long-standing historical um, racism. It was very much a man-made environmental justice catastrophe, though it was connected to um, and instigated by uh, a natu the natural disaster of a hurricane. And that really opened my eyes in a way that made me rethink what, what I was doing and the, um, the impact that my work, my career, and my life could have. I was about 10 years into my career and I began to realize that I had that I'd been doing this for a while and I could probably count on one hand the number of people of color who had been in the around the table as critical decisions were being made over the course of my entire career. And that was unacceptable to me. It was a brutal realization on my part. There's one piece of Patrice's career that really stuck out to me, and it was his public denouncement of Justice Brett Kavanaugh being given a seat at the table. In 2018, Kavanaugh was in the spotlight for sexual assault allegations by Christine Blasey Ford, a professor at Stanford University. Today, President Trump nominated Judge Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. And I say again, it is not a good day. Indeed, I feel sadness. Sad for this president who has made it clear that he prioritizes corporate profits over people. And this is our country. Our country, our court. Our country, our court. Our country, I asked Patrice why it was important for him to be publicly vocal against Kavanaugh's confirmation for the U.S. Supreme Court, which is perhaps atypical of someone working for an environmental advocacy organization. Well, really, this is about the courts, and the courts play such an important role, and the Supreme Court, of course, plays an oversized role in determining what the law is. Uh, determining who will be able to get in the doors to the courthouse in the first place, right? And then determining what kinds of remedies are going to be available to people even if they can't get in the door. The power of the law is tremendous. And if you, if you just think about how do we get things done, how do we accomplish change in this country? And if you look back over some of the most important things that have happened in this country in terms of, in terms of radical change, um, you know, you think of issues like a school desegregation, right? Well, there was huge political force behind that. There was an ongoing political dialogue for decades, if not centuries, but for decades in a really serious way, right? But what ultimately forced the, the reckoning of that in a way that, that was in some ways transformative? And that was a court case, Brown v. Board of Education. This girl here was the first Negro, apparently, of high school age to show up at Central High School the day that the federal court ordered it integrated. She was followed in front of the school by an angry crowd, many of them shouting epithets at her. Just got a report here on this end that the students are in. Do you feel it's worth it going through this? Yes, I do. In May 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court, the highest tribunal in the land, 
carried this American ideal of public education another step forward. In a unanimous decision, the nine Supreme Court justices ruled racial segregation in publicly supported schools to be unconstitutional, declaring that it denied equal opportunity. When politics can't do it, right, when politics fail, there's often the power of the courts and the power of the law to make things happen. Speaking of the power of the law and taking this back to how plastic is produced, let's talk about petrochemicals, the raw material which is used to make plastic. When we think about plastics, what we're really talking about is oil and gas extraction, going to a petrochemical plant, being um, refined or processed into the building blocks of plastics and, and other chemical products. And as the oil and gas industry is losing its grip on power production, right, the generation of electricity, it's therefore losing a huge market that has been uh, that it has relied upon forever as a place to offload these extractive pro products of oil and gas. So would it be safe to say, Patrice, it's fossil fuels trying to find a new home with the societal shift to renewables? The transformation to clean energy is inevitable, right? And as that transformation occurs, that marketplace for oil and gas, for those for the fossil fuel industry is drying up and they have to find another place, right? To turn those products into cash, right? And the petrochemical industry, which is, which really is the backbone of, of plastics production is where they're, they're making their bet. In episode one, we talked to retired special ed teacher and community organizer Ms. Sharon Levine from St. James Parish, Louisiana. Ms. Sharon lives only 2.5 miles away from petrochemical facilities that are keeping her sick and literally killing her loved ones. Patrice, you talk a lot about the power of the courts, and I want to know, is it even legal to be building toxic plastics facilities in people's backyards? The observation you make and, and I think, you know, you had a really important conversation with Sharon. You know, she sort of stands in the shoes of many others that are in very similar situations in communities under assault. M might be a dream for the petrochemical industry, um, but it would be a nightmare for many people across the country and around the world. It would come at a huge cost, and it would come at a toxic cost. So I guess my million dollar question is with all of these legal tools, why is a community like Sharon still facing 200 petrochemical facilities in her community? One of the problems with how our uh, environmental regulatory system works is it, it looks almost exclusively only at the impact of the individual facility that's being permitted. We don't see these petrochemical facilities in white suburbs. Uh, one plant or 200, we don't see any. So there's obviously a link to keeping these Black communities in a vulnerable cycle, in a vulnerable and vicious cycle. I will respond to that statement with an observation that Sharon herself made. <laughs> she said... Um, at one point in, in response to uh, 
the you know the Formosa facility that that Formosa plastic had chosen St. James because we are poor, because we are black, and because no one would speak up. How the reality of new big polluting facilities works. They and the permitting authorities associated with approving them um, recognize the risk of trying to locate in places where they will meet resistance, and they inherently look for places where they think there will be less resistance. And that's often locations that are already highly industrialized, and it's often locations that are in close proximity to black communities, other communities of color, and poor communities. I want to know uh, one last piece on Sharon Patrice is how do we revitalize vulnerable communities like Ms. Sharon's with the focus on environmental health and economic justice and equal rights, going back to the, the discussion on civil liberties? I think there's a lot of work to do. We have some clear starting points, right? We have to fix the part of our environmental the system of environmental protection in this country that has failed, right? We've got to fix that. We need a system that addresses, acknowledges and addresses the impact of cumulative exposures in a real way. We need a system that ensures that proper monitoring is in place so that we understand the real impact that people are living with. One of the things that we realize is that uh, many industries are chronically underreporting the actual emissions that are coming from their facilities. I want to go back to a something you said that was powerful early on. You said when politics fail, we go to policies and the power of the courts. What happens when this part of it fails? These legal actions, these these legal tools that should be keeping communities safe from harm, where do we go from that? I mean, is it organizing power? Is it community-led? Is that where the NGOs and the advocates step in? That is, that is absolutely right on the money, right? When the laws fail to accomplish their goals and fail to create the tools that allow for members of the community, for folks who are harmed, to go into court and force action. When the laws fail to do that, it then is the voice of the people, it is the voice of the advocates, it is the power of organizing. That's what creates that initial change that allows the laws to change that then give the tools to people to ensure that it's happening on the ground. And now is the moment to have that upswell again and say, we have to deal with this. We have to fix what's broken. What are some paths young people, in your opinion, can choose to fight this? I mean, you've had such a dynamic career and you are in this unique position where you really understand the power of the courts. What would you tell the younger audiences listening to this? There is an incredibly important movement happening now um, that is uh, transforming almost every facet of our society in, for the better. Your voices are important in that. Do not exercise your right to remain silent. This is the moment to be vocal. This is the moment to, to engage. I see a lot of tremendously important um, uh, black activism and, and activism of people of color, the Latinx community uh, across the country. It's, it's having an impact, right? It's transformational. 
And don't think for a second that your voice doesn't matter. Knowing where plastic comes from, I wanted our listeners to hear where it ends up, on the other side of the world. My friends like Froilan Grate in Manila, Philippines are no strangers to plastic's end of life, largely due to the failures and racism behind the recycling system. We often think we're saving the world by placing plastic in the blue bin and that it magically disappears. But the international recycling business sees this as a profitable venture which takes advantage of a market with no rules. It, it relates to me very personally, you know, like as an island boy, swimming was something that is natural to me. You know? it's, it's something that I crave for, you know. Um, and before, our, my, my first instinct was when you see a water, you want to jump in the water, you want to swim in the water. But <laughs> my memory was that the first time I saw Manila Bay, I was like, I would never in, in my entire life ever swim in this water. Froy arrived in the city of Manila when he was just 17 years old. After growing up on an island in the central part of the Philippines, this is what he recalls from his childhood. Typically weekends are spent going to the beach or going to the mountains and just really enjoying the place where I am Arriving at the port in Manila, you see Manila Bay um, compared to clear blue waters in the island where I grew up, I see just black water, you know, and instead of fishes or corals or uh, white sand, what I saw were, were uh, waste, mostly plastic waste. But at that very moment, you know, I, I had this realization that the same thing could happen to the island where I grew up if we don't do anything about it. If, if the same things that we are doing in, in the capital in Manila would be allowed to happen in the island as well. Froy and I talk a lot about the growing catastrophe of plastic packaging that cannot be recycled. In fact, the global recycling rate is less than 9%. And one of the packaging types we see the most in communities and waterways in Asia are called sachets. Sachets are made up of different materials that cannot be recycled. And because they're super lightweight, they're literally found everywhere. Imagine getting a ketchup packet for everyday household items like rice, sugar, cream, and even toothpaste. That's sort of a short textbook version of sachet. But here's Freud's perspective. Sachet for me is really about putting a stupid solution in a non-existent problem in the first place. What corporates would tell us is that we are too poor to afford their products. And the only way for us to afford their products is if we buy it in small quantities, typically packaged in sachet. Companies are saying, continue to buy our products, but we're not responsible for its end of life. It's basically saying, we will earn from you, but we don't care what you do with it after. Because sachets is a manifestation of corporations' uh, desire to sell more without being accountable for what they produce. 
we were never part of the decision-making in terms of how sachets were produced. We were never part of the decision-making in terms of how sachet is going to be rolled out and managed and disposed. And the worst part is for all of this, we are blamed for it. That's such an important piece of why it's critical for community to be not only at the table, but creating the table. There's a huge double standard here and that Asia keeps getting a finger pointed at in terms of blame, like you said, but the companies creating this shit are headquartered in the global north. Talk to me about those corporations and some of the interactions. I mean, you've been in the room in Washington, D.C. with industry heads. That should be as the most frustrating part of this advocacy, you know. Um, I had the privilege over the past few years of being in the room. But in many instances, you know, there's always a question in my head. Am I the token brown person in the room? Like, am I here because they need someone brown to be present? Or because they're genuinely interested to hear in what I have to say. It is already a burden, you know, to represent all the voices of the voiceless in these communities. But it is even more frustrating to represent those voices in a manner that is tokenistic. What I realize is that the people who are making the decisions that impacts people the most, especially in our part of the world, are people who are so detached from reality. They would put forward solutions that people on the ground would know by common sense, by lived experience, that it's not going to work. So for me, that, that's the biggest realization. There's still so much blame pointed to certain areas of the world. And what people don't realize is that countries that are wealthier, such as the U.S., countries in Europe, uh, Australia and Canada are outsourcing the waste problem. In many countries, they've banned it, but there continues to be waste dumping and open burning in various parts of the world, including the global south. And so I would love to know from you, Froy, how Filipinos are thinking about it and what is the responsibility of not just corporations in this, but governments? For us, it is a reflection of the global inequality, but most importantly, it's a reflection of how we are viewed in the world stage. The moment you send your waste here, and this is both about governments that are sending it, the, the companies that are behind these uh, transactions, but also even ordinary folks that are in, in good intentions. You might be putting your waste in a recycling bin, thinking that you're doing good, but what actually happens is that all of this uh, quote-unquote recycling is just waste being sent into uh, third world countries you know so for for us it is a reflection of what you think of us that we are less valuable that we we, we have less dignity because if if people view us um, in an equal sense you know like how could you imagine sending your waste to another place 18, 20 years ago, one of the first actions that I've joined was a uh, protest petition addressed to McDonald's. What we did was we went to their headquarters in Manila. 
we gave a petition letter for them, for very simple things, for them to stop using polystyrene and straws in their restaurants. McDonald's did not even have the decency to face us, to, to talk to us. You know? What they did was they sent their security guards to um, receive the petition. Right? So that for me was already a clear example of the power play in here. That we, even as, as we come together, there's hundreds of us there, we still aren't enough to be heard. Their response was that they cannot make these decisions because those decisions would have to come from their global headquarters in the U.S. In fact, in the U.S., in many places, McDonald's have already decided not to use polystyrene. In some cases, plastic uh, drinking cups and, and, and straws. So, for me, that was really insulting, you know, like, we are here come together to say that the consumers here are saying we don't want this and you're telling us that we you can't make that decision because those decisions would come from white folks in their plush offices in, in the US and those white folks have already made a decision that those same things that we have been demanding is okay to be implemented in some other markets but not to us. Thanks for that, Fry. I mean, it's it's just so frustrating to hear about the double standards and people that don't look like you making decisions about your life and your communities. This is a great segue into a solution, something that is super innovative around addressing these double standards, and it's called the brand audit. The brand audit is essentially taking coastal cleanups to the next level by not only looking at the types of plastic being collected, but the brands. And it can be done anywhere in the world, not just the coasts. We want to give a face to the real culprits behind this. We are done. We are tired of taking the blame for all of this, when in fact, we know who should be responsible. But then we don't have the numbers. We know back in our, the back of our heads it's Nestle, it's McDonald's, it's Coca-Cola, it's Unilever, it's Procter & Gamble. But we don't have the numbers. And that is where the idea of the brand audits started. We finally have the numbers to say that these are the people producing the waste in the first place. I've conducted over 100 waste and brand audits in, in, in my life. And I could tell you, it's not a pleasant experience. It's really a manual labor it's very much a labor of love because we know that we can't do cleanups forever we can't take the responsibility of cleaning up after the corporates forever and we're now in our fifth year of brand audits happening all over the world not just philippines or global south but nearly every country on this planet is part of this community effort feeding into a global data set that turns into an annual report it's been highly successful. Froy, I would love to hear what corporate responses have been to our brand audits. There are some token efforts of resistance. We, we've known of some companies that have 
requested uh, local groups in the Philippines to um, not release the results of the brand audit, especially in the first year. We've known some companies have used it to uh, engage with us, to talk, you know, whether um, they were coming at it from a genuine perspective to do something or not. But ultimately, I think the, the one of the benefits of the brand audit is that it is a very powerful tool in terms of changing the narrative. For the longest time, it's about blaming people in the global south, blaming people in, in, in Asia. But with the brand audits, we're saying that yes, we as individuals, uh, we as consumers, we have a role to play. But the bigger source of the problem are these companies who are producing this in the first place. It's been 20 years since you left your, your island town. You're back in your island during the pandemic right now. What has changed in terms of the amount of plastic that you're seeing where you're from? I'm really sad to say that, in fact, my biggest fears are turning out to be true. You know? um, we're not encouraging people to uh, drink soda you know, for health reasons. But I'll use this as an example. 20 years ago, if, if you visit a store in, 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 in the island, sodas would come in um, refillable glass bottles. Right? There's, a, there's a working logistics that allows for Coca-Cola to sell products in glass bottles and people would return it and it gets refilled and it's a working logistics then. Right now, it's almost impossible to see uh, Coca-Cola products in glass bottles. Everything now is, is in pet bottles, you know? And I think that is reflective of the way Coke has been pushing for their products here in the island and in many other places. Um, sachets is, is now more prevalent. Uh, there's a shift towards um, packaged food instead of uh, locally produced goods. What is your message to other community leaders fighting for systemic change in the face of racism, corruption, and corporate greed. Don't wait for an invite into the room. Don't wait for um, a space to be created for, for us, especially for most of us that have been so used to being marginalized that um, we are sometimes tempted you know, to just welcome any opportunity to speak. I think we need to be reminded sometimes that when we work together, we can create the spaces for us and we can create the power that allows our voices to be heard as well, despite all the limitations that are being put forward for us, you know, despite all the stumbling blocks that are being thrown our way. I think we can make the spaces and we can make our voices heard. Patrice's deep faith in the courts has inspired me to mention a few major policy wins when it comes to the state of plastics in the U.S. Perhaps the most notable being the northernmost state of Maine passing a law that forces plastic manufacturers to pay for the cost of recycling and disposal instead of cities and towns. This also means manufacturers will be incentivized to use less plastic that isn't recyclable, like the sachets that Freud describes. In policy terms, this paradigm-shifting legislation is called Extended Producer Responsibility. I look forward to sharing more policy wins in the episodes to come.
We hope you enjoyed the show. There's more information about the work of environmental attorney Patrice Sims and zero waste activist Froyland Gratte in the show notes. Continue the conversation on our Instagram and Twitter at PeopleXPlastic. We can't wait to hear your thoughts. Don't forget to tune in to our third episode. See you next time. Thank you.